This is a Federal News Network podcast. Even for the government, the Defense Department's Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program is a complicated apparatus. Its goal is ultimately to ensure that DOD agencies can be reasonably sure their data held by contractors and subs is secure. Central to CMMC is a group known as the Accreditation Body. Here was an update. The chairman of the Accreditation Body Board of Directors, retired Air Force Colonel Carlton Johnson. Colonel Johnson, good to have you on. Thank you. I'm looking forward to having a great conversation. And if you would, just review the moving parts, the major moving parts of the CMMC, because you've got the agencies, you've got the accreditors, you've got the accreditation body. You've got a lot of people making sure this all happens, a lot of groups. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of interesting to watch how this has unfolded. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll just talk a little bit about what the ecosystem looks like and how the parts and pieces play together at a big level. So, you know, of course, it starts with the federal government and their requirement. And they have this information called controlled and classified information that will, or maybe in certain contracts. And if you aggregate this CUI, is what it's called, you need to protect it in a way that you're helping to protect sensitive information. So to do that, what we were asked to do and what we have done is establish an ecosystem that allows people who receive this to have certain levels of standards to protect it. It starts with the CMMC accreditation body. We're said to be volunteers, I'd like to say professionals, who have answered a nation's call, and we've come together to build an ecosystem that includes certified third-party assessors, or C3PAOs. Those are the entities that will be charged working with, say, companies like Lockheed or Boeing or others, and those entities are called Organizations Seeking Certification, OSCs. They work with those entities, and let's say a Lockheed or whoever says, I'd like to be certified. The C3PAO then reaches out to assessors in the field, and those assessors may either work for the C3PAOs or come from independent locations. And they descend upon the OSC, they perform the assessment, and then once the assessment is done, that information is funneled up to and through the C3PO to the accreditation body. And together, we make sure that the T's are crossed, the I's are dotted, and then if all that works out, the C3PO issues out the certification. So we've built that portion of the ecosystem. In addition to that, we have started to and fielded licensed training partners, licensed publishing partners, and those are parts of the ecosystem that will help create content to help people understand what CMMC is about and also create instructors so that this becomes a scalable effort. So holistically, you have the C3PAOs, the assessors, you have the organization seeking assessment, OSCs, and then you have the training end. In addition to that, because we knew that people wanted to get an early start, we identified what we call registered practitioners, uh, RPs, and registered provider organizations, RPOs. Those are people who are not certified, but they do have a level of IT expertise, and we give them CMMC training. And essentially, they go out and work with businesses to help consult, if you will, and they advise. The sure. key behind the RPs and RPOs, though, just so you know, an RP and RPO cannot certify you but they can help you get ready for CMMC. Yes, you answered my next question so that you keep all the parts separate so that there's no conflicts of interest that could creep into the system otherwise. Absolutely. And that's an excellent point. I'm glad you brought that up. There is a clear separation of the various parts of the ecosystem to exactly do that. For example, if you're a assessor and you have worked for the company that you would assess, you can't assess them. So we built into the ecosystem 
different levels of conflict mitigation and remediation. Sure. And I guess the main question for this time in history, are there enough assessors to go around to get everybody assessed? Because my understanding is there's there's 300,000 potential companies that need to have that assessment. And here's how I'm going to answer that. This is not supposed to be a, we descend and do 300,000 assessments today. It was never envisioned to be that. As the government has articulated, this is a crawl, walk, run program. And so the initial tranche that we've been asked to provide, which is approximately, and I think the number is about 150 assessors we have already trained, those were for the initial pilots and programs that were established within this fiscal year. Now, keep in mind that we were building all of this in 2020 COVID land. And so despite COVID, we have been able to field the initial 150. Once the licensed training partners and publishing partners get the instructors going, now we'll be able to scale that up further. And as the government and industry identifies the requirements, expectations, we're going to scale to that demand. We're speaking with Carlton Johnson. He's board chairman of the CMMC accreditation body. And does the body oversee the three CPOs and the assessors only, or do you also oversee the registered practitioners, the RPOs, that end of things also? That's a great question. And so I guess I'll answer that this way. We manage and created the entire ecosystem. We provide oversight and governance for those constituent parts of the ecosystem. So we do work with the C3PAOs and the assessors work through the C3PAOs. The RPs and RPOs, essentially what we do is give them that initial training, as I mentioned, and then they're off to do what they need to do. Now that said, here's why the RPO and RP program is important. We provide them not only with the CMMC training, but we also require them to sign ethics documents and ensure, at least uh, identify, that they are going to follow those standards. So when you come to our marketplace that we've been asked to create by the government, you have choices. You can go out and find somebody on your own to do work with you. But just like any event, you pay for what you get. At least by coming to our marketplace, you have people who have gone through a level of checks. Uh, oh, by the way, to include a background check, I didn't mention that. And they do have a certain level of training. So you're getting a certain level of quality by going with them. But that's the extent of what we do with the RPs and RPOs. Everything else falls under our umbrella at this time. And you mentioned the board members are volunteers, and I want to get back to that. But let me ask you this. Is the expectation of this program that someone who becomes an assessor can make a living at it? And if that's the case, how do the assessors get connected with the organizations seeking certification? Is that an open marketplace, or is there some kind of match-up system? It's an open marketplace, and what we do is we establish that marketplace. So let's say that, again, you're a company wanting to get certified. You come to our marketplace, we'll have the C3PAOs identified, and then you would connect with that C3PAO. That C3PAO would then go out into the marketplace and get assessors, and those assessors would come from the system that we have created to get assessors certified and approved. Uh, those assessors may already work for a C3PAO, but they would have gone through the exact same certification process. And that is pretty rigid. That's a strict process to ensure the credibility and viability of the program. So can an assessor make a living of that? Well, 300 X thousand companies out there looking for CMMC, and we're hearing 
other government sectors want to start adopting this. And we're hearing also from international people. So I suspect that assessors will have a lot of ability to do well in this market. But the other piece I'll tell you is that the adversary is remaining agile. So as long as there's somebody who's looking to get into the systems and networks and steal IP and so forth, there's going to be a market for assessors. You bet. And the assessors, what types of skills do they need to have? If you go to our website, we list specifically what each assessor needs to have. I'll just kind of talk high level. Of course, they have to have a certain level of IT background, certain number of years being in the marketplace and demonstrated that they have that level of skill. They go through extensive CMMC training and they have to take tests. They also have to sign documents regarding ethics and so forth. And once they've been vetted through that entire background checks and so forth, they're approved through our system. All right. And let's get back to the board. They're volunteers. And are you a volunteer or do you have a day job in addition to this? Because it sounds like it's probably something that would take up most of your time. I'm kind of smiling here because, yes, I am a volunteer. No, I don't get paid for this. Not a single member of the board gets paid for this. And yes, it's a lot of work. I personally have been on this program, I think it's like 18 months. And the question I typically get from people is, yeah, do you have a day job and why are you doing this? And the answer is, absolutely, I do have a day job. I have several things I do in addition to CMMC. That said, one of the things that struck me about this program, being a cyber guy and having actually defended my nation against those who would want to do us harm, I recognize how important cyber hygiene is and cyber readiness. So I'm willing to devote the time and energy to do this. And as with anything, you find the right balance in your day to do what's important to you. This is probably one of the most important things I've done in my life next to serving my country in the military and also trying to you know, raise my family and everything else to do the right thing. And everybody who's on the board has volunteered to do this. So this is a passion for me and a labor of love. Will I do it forever? No, at some point I need to move on and let the next team come up and uh, take the reins. But I'm in this to defend my country against all enemies foreign and domestic. And of course, volunteer boards can be terrific, but you also need to sustain them. What's your vision for how the board will operate and how to maintain it so that it's attractive for the volunteers to be on the board? So as we came together as this group of professionals who stepped up to the plate to do this, We needed to be all hands on deck, what I'd like to call director doers. Now that we have Matt Travis on board, our CEO, a gentleman who was very well accomplished in the industry, very well respected, and the right man to do this. Now with the CEO, we're going to start bringing on professional staff. And as the professional staff comes on, we will baton handoff the functions that the directors have been doing. And over the next few months, My expectation is that you will see the board transition from a board of director doers to a governing board focusing on the strategic aspects of the system. And then Matt Travis and his team will do the operational and tactical, as well as some of the strategic, and will actually run this as it's been envisioned to be uh, a full-fledged company with all professional staff who are paid to do that. And zooming back out to the CMMC program as a whole, how would you describe where it is now in history? Have any companies, for example, been assessed and have paid the assessment and now can hang a shingle that says 
are okay with CMMC, at least for now. Where does it all stand? Well, we just had a town hall last night where we talked about the assessments that are going on with the C3PAOs. It's an organization called DIPCAC that works for DCMA that will check the C3PAOs for a CMMC level three. And once they're approved, then we'll identify them as approved to be in the marketplace and go live. That process is going on right now, and no one has been completed yet, but we're close to doing that. As soon as that happens, you guys will know, everybody will know that we have the first tranche of C3PAOs out there. We'll post them on the marketplace, and we'll move forward from there. So to be clear, I have seen different parts of the marketplace. And when I say the marketplace, let's just say on the net, companies that are saying they're CMMC level X ready to go. That's incorrect. No one has been checked yet. When in doubt, ask the CMMC AB, and we'll let you know ground truth. Got it. And the Biden administration and its military team has come in and indicated they wanted to take a look at the program. Have you gotten any advice, any program direction, any expectations or wish lists from them yet? We've had our initial conversations. I can't go into detail about that. What I will say is this. When it comes to cybersecurity, my belief, and this is my belief, Cyber and the adversaries in this case are agnostic of the politics. So this is a bipartisan issue. And as a result, I would expect any new organization, any new administration to come in, ask questions about what's going on with an important program like this, get the sense of where things are, and then use that information to make better decisions on what to do during the term of that team. This is normal part of the operation And so what I intend to do is we'll continue to be transparent with the questions we're asked. We'll continue to talk about the great things we're doing. We'll remain open to listening to how we can do things better. And at the end of the day, we want to partner for success with the ecosystem and with the administration and the government writ large to make this a success. And a final question. What is your personal metric for success of this program, say, two, three years down the line? Well, See, you're making me think today. I guess I need to get my triple espresso. So, all right, three years down the road, this is what I would expect. I'd expect to have a full team on board on Matt Travis's side. We would have, by then, cycled through uh, an initial group of directors and brought on some additional high-profile people in the industry who want to bring in senior executive leadership and expertise to help Matt and his team move this forward. I would expect to see several assessments not only done and certificates awarded, but getting better insight into how things can be better. And as we're in, say, year three, I would like to see CMMC being adopted across different industry lines, not just in the in the defense sector, and then opening the door up more with our international partners where possible so that we're leveling the playing field and cyber hygiene is status quo at a CMMC level one for everybody, for X percent of the marketplace, CMMC level three. And then as the adversary gets agile, we calibrate that up. And we're able to do that with agility, with speed, and on occasion, a little audacity so we can respond back to those adversaries and push the cost back to them. And what about the civilian side of government? Can you see a CMMC universal You know, and that's a good question, too. I personally believe, yes. Here's how I would answer this in a different way. If I'm a company, small, medium, or large, and if I don't do basic cyber hygiene, it's not really an an issue for, say, government, per se. It's more of an issue for me to protect my IP. 
So I want to have some level of cyber readiness. So the civilian sector definitely can benefit from this. And if you want to go to that next level of excellence to say CMMC level two or three, it's just the right thing to do. And from a civilian perspective, it gives you, I believe, an opportunity to go to the other table and say, not only do I offer a significant amount of capabilities that you really want to know about, I'm also cyber ready and I'm going to protect your data at the same level that the government protects theirs. That is a terrific business case. And I'd rather partner with somebody who thinks about this and wants to protect my data as well as they want to protect theirs. It's great. Carlton Johnson is board chairman of the CMMC accreditation body. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And uh, thanks for what you're doing on this. The fact that you're communicating this story is big and it's very helpful to all the people on the net. I just want to thank you for the ongoing support to the program and uh, look forward to great things in this year and the years to come. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness Uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. (laughs) Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? 
you know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned 
and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If, if there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, 
confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.